Welcome back to the Photographers of Color podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Turner. It's been a while since our last episode, but there have been some changes I'm working on that will be announced at a later date. Before we get into episode 15, I want to take this time to thank the University of Arkansas School of Art for their continued support in making this podcast possible. For this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Robert Cochran, professor in the Department of English here at the University of Arkansas. His research and teaching interests include American studies, American literature, folklore, and contemporary literature. He has numerous publications to his name and awards, including a 1989 Guggenheim Fellowship. During this episode, we speak about Cochran's book, A Photographer of Note, Arkansas artist Jalevi Grice. I became aware of Professor Cochran's book in the fall of 2019, and I immediately reached out to start a conversation. So after about two years of conversation and many trips to special collections to scan negatives here on campus, there's a new exhibition of Grice's work, which I'll speak about in closing. Jalevi Grice was born on January 16, 1922 in Tamo a small farming community located 15 miles from Pine Bluff. At the age of 13, Grice moved with his parents, Toy and Lily, to Little Rock, where he graduated from Dunbar High School in 1942. An accomplished sportsman, Grice made the All-State football team his senior year of high school and later played for a service team during his four-year stint in the Navy. Grice entered the U.S. Navy immediately after graduation in the heat of World War II, eventually serving in the Pacific, where he guarded Japanese prisoners. Grice began his photography career as a high school senior. L.C. and Daisy Bates, publishers of the Arkansas State Press newspaper, encouraged his journalistic interests by creating a column that featured his images and writings about fellow Dunbar classmates. While in the Navy, Grice was stationed at Great Lakes Naval Air Station in Illinois and went to Chicago on leave, where he took photos of the city's nightlife, capturing unique images of famous black Americans like Joe Lewis, Louis Armstrong, and famed guitarist T-Bone Walker. After completing his military service on April 23, 1946, Grice enrolled at Arkansas Agricultural, Mechanical, and Normal College, later to be known as UAPB the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff, where he majored in psychology. He also played football for the Golden Lions, served as a yearbook photographer, and was eventually hired in 1947 as the campus photographer. In September 1949, Grice married his college sweetheart, Jean Bell of North Little Rock, a singer who went on to become the first black graduate student in the music department of the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. When he graduated in 1950, Grice had already opened the professional photography studio where he would earn his living for the next 40 years. He frequently worked outside the studio for the Arkansas State Press and various local television stations. Grice's photos also appeared in national publications such as Ebony, Jet, and Life magazines. One of the highlights of Grice's career came while still a college student in 1948, when he was asked to document the integration of the University of Arkansas Law School in Fayetteville. Silas Hunt, accompanied by attorneys Wiley Branton and Harold Flowers, became the first black student to enroll in an all-white Southern University 
since Reconstruction. In 1958, Grice photographed Martin Luther King Jr.'s commencement address at AMNN College. Because Grice was often called upon to chronicle significant happenings in the black community, his collection includes of other notable black Americans such as Mary McLeod Bethune, Ray Charles, Thurgood Marshall, and Muhammad Ali. In 1998, the UAPB Art Department sponsored an exhibition of his work titled Those Who Dare to Dream, the Works of Arkansas Photographer Jalevi Grice. The Old State House Museum in Little Rock followed in 2003 with the more extensive exhibition of his work, a photographer of note, Arkansas artist Jalevi Grice. In 2003, the University of Arkansas Press published a book of the same title by Robert Cochran, featuring many of Grice's most captivating photos. Mr. Grice died on August 17, 2004. Here's my conversation with Professor Cochran on Jalevi Grice. Enjoy. So, Bob, thank you so much for being here today. I'm looking forward to talking to you about Mr. Jalevi Grice. Bob, let's start off with talking about how about first, uh, tell me how you ended up at the University of Arkansas and maybe a little bit of what led up to your introduction to Mr. Grice, uh, your introduction to his pictures uh, in 1998. Okay, uh, that, that's actually easily told, that story. I, I came to Arkansas because uh, as a young academic, I, I had a PhD in English, uh, but I was interested in traditional culture in what back in that day was traditionally called folklore. And you had folk. I, it, it wasn't academic, that interest. I had only taken one folklore class in my life, and it had bored me. But uh, I, I actually got to see some folklorists at work uh, while I was teaching in Mississippi for one year. Uh, a guy named Bill Ferris, uh, who was a friend of mine, ended up as the director of the National Endowment for the Humanities at one point, uh, I believe during the Carter administration. But at any rate, he was, he was a folklorist. He was teaching at Jackson State at that time in Jackson, Mississippi. And he, he went to document a Sacred Harp singing convention. And like just about everything else in Mississippi at that time, it was segregated. The African-American congregations... Uh, had singings uh, separate from white congregations that used the same basically the same hymnals, you know, the same shape note singing traditions. Mm -hmm. But once a year, they would have a kind, I don't know what they called it, I've forgotten, a homecoming, but they, they, uh, they actually is one of the places where black and white congregations met and sang together. Uh, it, was, uh, it was one of those areas of overlap of the, of the two traditions. Um, and it was a tightly constrained tradition, and I know you're not here to talk about sacred harp singing, but it's, in other words, you, you, there's not a whole lot of room for improvisation in sacred harp singing. They, they sing it by rote, and they sing it in the same way. But anyway, I was, what surprised me, this is real down to earth, what came as a shock to me was that you could do this and get paid for it. You could do this kind of folklore studies, because it interested me enormously. And so... I'm going backwards to your first question, how I got to Arkansas. I got to Arkansas because I was teaching at Indiana University, South Bend campus. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was eager to leave um, because I was getting some slight pressure from my 
department chair. I was furious at the time, but I realize now that he was just doing his job. He reminded me that I had been hired for a specific specialization. I was supposed to be writing about contemporary drama because that's what I'd written my PhD dissertation on. Mm -hmm. And my interest had, had developed like everybody's do over the years. And I didn't want to be shoved into that little pigeonhole. So there I was kind of discontented and, and uh, eager to leave. And I saw an ad, the only ad I've ever seen in my life as an academic, that I said, this, this ad was written for me. You know, I could, I could uh, give God a run for this job. And so I applied for the job. And the, what made it special was that they wanted a PhD in English specifically, and they wanted somebody to teach folklore class specifically every term. So there was part of your teaching assignment was going to be divided that way. So even though I had the, the, the certification in English, I was publishing stuff in folklore by that time. So I thought, you know, I'm a strong candidate for this job. So I applied for it and I got it. And that's what got me to Arkansas. And that was in 1976. Then a considerable time passes, but I get to know people and I start getting interested in studying, you know, and, and writing about uh, the culture that I discovered in Arkansas. Had no particular interest in photography, had no particular interest in African-American culture, although I was interested in both. But, but again, I was just resisting any specialization that was going to capture me permanently. I wanted to be able to move in whatever direction appealed to me. So this is where the pure accident comes in. I'd gotten to know Michael Debricius a little bit. He was at that time the director of special collections. And now we finally home in on Mr. Grice. Uh, he, for whatever reason, uh, found himself in Pine Bluff. And he saw an exhibit in the art department at UAPB. And by that time, it was called UAPB. That, and then I got lucky. It, he, it occurred to him as he saw the exhibit that I would like it, that I would find it interesting. And I trusted him enough. And I've trusted a number of people. A lot of my books have come because somebody told me about something. And in this case, the something was Jalevi Grice's pictures. He came back to Fayetteville and he told me about this. So the next time I got to Little Rock, and I was going to Little Rock for uh, working with the museum for other reasons, for the Old State House Museum, and I just added a trip to Pine Bluff. You know, it's not real long from there. And so I went down, and I saw the same exhibit that he had. And I met a man there. I think he was the chair of the art department at that time, and he's an artist himself. You, you may know him. Henry Linton is his name. Henry with an I on the end. Henry Linton was the chair of the art department, and, and I saw the exhibit. I liked it. I knocked on Henry Linton's door. In fact, he had sort of showed me into the exhibit, and then he was really polite enough to just let me walk through it at my own pace. So then I went back and looked him up and asked him if Mr. Grice was still living. I knew nothing about him. I'd never heard of Mr. Grice. Um, and he gave me all the dope. He said, yeah, he's, he's not only is he still living, he's living in Pine Bluff. So I called him. And uh, went out to see him, and the rest is history. I mean, he let me in the door. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's a long answer, but that's how I got to Arkansas and how I got to Grice. No, that's perfect. I love that answer. I love hearing a lot about your background and your experiences as an individual. And yeah. That all ties into Arkansas, which eventually led to Mr. Grice. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. So a follow-up to that, I want to ask you in your own words. So once you met Mr. Grice and you had all these experiences – responses to his work in your own words tell us who Mr. Grice is and why his work is so important that 
to the point where he pursued making a book about it, which that book title is A Photographer of Note, Arkansas Artist, Jaleel Grice. Well, the first thing to say is that I made a number of mistakes. But let me start with the experience of seeing that exhibit in Pine Bluff. And here's the mistake. The first thing that impressed me about the exhibit in Pine Bluff was that all these famous people were in the pictures. Uh, he had a whole bunch of pictures, and you, you know, you know this, Aaron. The, uh, there were pictures of Joe Lewis. There were pictures of Louis Armstrong. There were pictures of Eleanor Roosevelt, Duke Ellington. I mean, I could go on for several minutes just talking about famous people. And, and I was blown away by that. Uh, they weren't all taken in Pine Bluff. A lot of those early pictures were taken when he was still in the military in Chicago. But I didn't know that. You know, I hadn't done any subdividing at that time. But a lot of famous people were in Pine Bluff, too. I mean, he, the most famous courses in Martin Luther King gave the commencement address. And, clear, and it was AM and N back in that day. And uh, he came in 1958 to Pine Bluff to give the commencement address. So the first thing I noticed was all these luminaries, you know, all these big shots. That alone probably impelled me to go see him. But that was a mistake because, and you know, all you have to do is think for a minute or two. Everybody takes pictures of Joe Lewis and everybody takes, you know, everywhere Joe Lewis goes, he gets his picture taken. Same with all the others that I named. Um, it gradually dawned on me. I don't think there was a singular epiphany moment, but as I visited with him, it became clear that one, underneath the surface, there was a sense of mission. It wasn't, the, he wasn't uh, loud about it. He, he didn't. He didn't come on with his sense of mission. Um, but the fact was that he had dedicated an enormous amount of effort to, uh, to serving his community, to serving his home community. Maybe the most obvious thing of that, and you may have listed this somewhere on the, on the, uh, sh on the sheet that you sent me, um, but the most obvious one to me was the school pictures because it was clear to me that there was a lot of effort involved in that. I mean, you know what I saw. I saw a bunch of individual pictures, but I also saw these, I guess you'd call them class pictures, the little thumbnails of, of the whole graduating class at high schools all over the state. And as I looked into it more, as far west as Longview, Texas. So he, what he did was get in his car and drive to these schools and take these pictures. And these are, these are mostly from segregation days at the time. In fact, I think every school picture that he did of that sort was at a segregated high school for African-American kids. And he was very articulate about that. Once I got him into that subject and started asking him about it, he went into great detail, told me he slept in his car. He, he told me that he couldn't go everywhere in the spring when people were graduating. So he invested. He actually invested some money in this. He bought a bunch of choir robes and in various sizes, and, and he carried them with him in the car. And he'd get there, and he'd dress these kids up in these robes and take their pictures. And he'd do it in October, you know, for the, for the anticipated graduating class. So I, that was the first place where I zeroed in. And when I asked him questions about it, he had it ready-to-hand answers. I mean, he said, and it was simple. He, he just sort of understood it at a human level. He said, you know, these kids wanted the same thing that the white kids got in their schools. They want school pictures. And if I didn't do it, they were up a creek. If I didn't do it, it wasn't going to get done. So he saw it as something he should do, you know, and he was always apologizing. We may get to this. He was always apologizing when I would bring up somebody like Withers to him who was real active in 
photographing the civil rights movement, you know, and, and could be described as a kind of activist photographer. He, he, he said that he was not that. Uh, and he was always real apologetic. I mean, he even said at one point, you know, I, had, I think I put it in the book. He, I, I got a, what, a wide streak of yellow down the middle of my back, something like that. And, but he did, so this wasn't a thing where you were going to get your camera smashed or, you know, people were not going to put billy clubs on your head. But what he was doing, he, if he wasn't putting risk into it, he was certainly putting effort into it. And he saw it as something he should do. So I liked the guy right off. I mean, I thought, okay, this is this is this 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 guy's starting to come into focus. Sorry to use a photo photographic image, but he's starting to come into focus for me as a as a, a figure that I could write a coherent narrative about. Yeah, and it's it's interesting, like the parts where you started talking about how Mr. Grice responded to you asking him about you know driving all over Texas and Arkansas to these rural areas to be segregated only uh, black schools uh, to make these pictures. If he didn't make them, they weren't going to get made. So I think that starts to enter the, like, the conversation around how photography intersects with, like, uh, maybe some people may describe it as visual culture, but also, like, class. Absolutely. And just how photography kind of has this expansive view or perspective on time. Because we can sit here and talk about those pictures now and what they mean and like the weight that they carry, and they had their specific weight, similar weight that they carried when Mr. Grice was making them. Um, so that, that's just something like I think that's fascinating to think about, um, and I think that's one of the things that archives and pictures do, like put these narratives on, you know, for years after they they've been taken. So. Oh yeah. In fact, just to run with what you just said there. I think in some ways these things actually accrue weight uh, as time passes. I mean, there's some sense in which they lose it because today, for example, kids in high school probably take school pictures for granted. Mm -hmm. So in some sense, they, they, they weigh less than they did in his day. But I have found that, and it was educational for me, you know, and, and sometimes the ironies were particularly heavy. Like, you know this one picture, and it was—I saw it as a heartbreaker. But at the same time, it was—it uh, was—you uh, know—I realized it was more complex at the time. The, and I remember the school. It was Eudora, Eudora, Arkansas. He's got this high school picture, and he's got everybody in it, class officers and all that stuff. And at the top, you got a class motto. And I forget what the aspirational word was, but it was something like, you know, the, the, I'll just say blank. The motto, the class motto was, and we could, we could look it up, but blank is un-American. You, do you happen to remember? Because I don't remember the word, what it is. No, I don't remember that, that picture, but I do know Eudora is like at the bottom half of the state, though. Like Way right down. There, right there at the border, almost. Yeah. Yeah. Of Texas. So... It's a very poor community, you know, in terms economically. And the picture, you know, the picture is old from the 1950s. It's, it's, it's sort of cut up at the edges and rumpled. But it's, uh, it's something like I can't. So it's such an aspirational motto. Maybe, maybe I'm guessing now, but I think the word might be impossible. Impossible is un-American. And I'm looking at that. You know, I'm this privileged college professor, you know, never poor. My, my family was middle class from, from the jump. Both my parents had college educations, and, you know, we were mobile. I got to, you know, travel around the country. And 
so I come down there and I, and for me, when I first look at that, my, my reaction is cynical. I think, you know, I'm, I'm height, I'm, my awareness is heightened of how stacked the deck is against these kids. And then they got this aspirational motto, you know, impossible is un-American. And, uh, so the, what I, what was in danger for me was that I would lose the aspirational part of it, that I would think only of the deck being stacked against these, these kids. Cause kids, you know, you're a senior in high school, you look great. I mean, men and women, these guys, you know, these proud, unbroken, unbeaten faces. I mean, they're looking forward, but I'm 50 by this time. And I have some sense of what's out there, you know, and how the hammer comes down on people. And so there was a danger that I would lose the sort of the, the sort of hopeful side of it. And Mr. Grice, I think he what, what he was doing was in some ways, I mean, in a modest way, I don't want to overstate this, but in some way, the fact that he took that picture, printed it up in that way, gave some support to the aspirational side of the equation. So it was a real learning experience for me. And I can't stress before I shut up at this moment, uh, I, I can't stress how innocent in the negative sense I was, how little I knew about, you know, first of all, Mr. Grice's situation as a photographer. And we'll, I'm sure that no matter what we talk about, there will be times when we will, we will intersect again with the way the deck was stacked against him as a photographer. Uh, and it was so it was a learning experience uh, from the jump. He was uh, we, I'm sure we'll talk more about him in that regard. Yeah, I love hearing you talk about your experience. And, you know, I'm hearing a little bit about what the pictures looking at Mr. Grice's archive did to you. Yeah, that would change you and that powerful transformative process side of that photography can have. Like it can have a transformative uh, impact on like who you are as a person. Um, especially looking at, you know, from a linear perspective, if you will. Uh, so looking, being able to look at things in hindsight and being able to, like, consider your own self against maybe the people in the photographs themselves, maybe the things that they're, they're going through or, or uh, you know, or living through at that time period. But also, yeah, it's just interesting to hear about your overall experience with the pictures. Um, in the book, you mentioned dozens of trips you made to Pine Bluff to meet Mr. Grice. Uh, to look at pictures, you you interviewed him, y'all sat down and looked at pictures several times. Um, you also met with others in the community that, that talked with you about him. So are there a couple of trips that, that stand out the most that you'd like to share, one or two? Yeah, um, let me go back for, to get the first thing, because this is at the very beginning. When I first knocked on his door, and that all happened that first day, I went down and looked at the exhibit. I, I knocked on the door of Dr. Linton and, and uh, learned that he lived in Pine Bluff. And I called him from Dr. Linton's office. <laughs> Just picked up the phone. Dr. Linton said, sure, go ahead. So I called him, and I was lucky again. He was at home, and he, you know, invited me to come out to his house. And the, the thing that made everything happen is he could have cut me off at the pass right then if he had been unwelcoming in any way. I'm not a particularly persistent person. I'm, you know, I know when I'm being told to, you know, get out of there. And, uh, but he was unbelievably amiable and welcoming. I mean, surprisingly so, uh, given the differences, you know, he's old, he's 20 years older than I am. Um, he's black, I'm white. Um, he, he's at his house. Um, and he had, he had every reason to regard me with some 
not, you know, I don't want to make it negative like hostility, but he had every reason to be reserved around me. That's a good way to put it. And he was unreserved. He was totally unreserved. He was incredibly welcoming. So now back to the trips. The trips I remember the most are not my trips to Pine Bluff. I mean, I, I took his son out to lunch sometime. And you know, one time I remember vividly his son, Michael, and I went out to lunch without him. He was busy. So I got a kind of peek from the side, you know, how his son regarded him, uh, which was generally admiring. Um, but the trips are most, for the most part, well, I remember one trip to Pine Bluff while I was talking to him, uh, his stove caught on fire. He was cooking something and there were flames coming up from his stove. And the first person to see it, because I wasn't paying attention to him, uh, to, the, to that, I was paying attention to Mr. Grice, was my son, Jesse, who was probably... 15 at the time uh he noted and he he was he's you know he's a shy kid so he was hesitant to interrupt but he did thank goodness he interrupted and uh, said uh, mr grice your stove's on fire <laughs> and he ran out in the kitchen and you know snuffed it with a wet towel and stuff and everything was fine but the trips i for the most part remember are his trips to fayetteville because he came up there any number of times and uh he loved, he loved to go to basketball games, uh, and I could get tickets for us. I remember one game, there was a, I've forgotten the rankings, but a nationally ranked Auburn team came in to play uh, Nolan Richardson's Razorbacks at that time. So Richardson was a coach. We had good teams. And we got seats. The place was sold out, and he had a wonderful time. Um, and so by this time, I mean, I don't want to exaggerate this, he, but his welcoming was so absolute that he, you know, he'd come out to the house with me. He saved, he, he said one of the nicest things. I think I've told you this. He said one of the nicest things ever got said to my daughter. He, one of the trips he came up, he asked about, maybe he'd met this guy or something that some previous boyfriend or at least heard him talked about. But he asked my daughter, she was a teenager at the time. She might've been in high school. He said, how's that boyfriend of yours? And uh, no, she was an undergrad. She was in college. She was like a college sophomore by this time. But anyway, she said, well, he dumped me. He said I was too bossy. And it's probably true. She's a real bossy young woman. But at any rate, uh, the, he, what he said was just, just endeared me to him. He shook his head. He said, man must have lost his mind. <laughs> and nothing could have perked her up more. I mean, it just, it just lifted her spirits. And, you know, as a father, I was real grateful to him. And he had that gift. I mean, he had that gift of, of social engagement. So when we went to the basketball games, he didn't hesitate to tell Frank Broyles to stand beside so-and-so, have his picture taken. I mean, this, I'm not making this up. He carries his camera into this fancy reception and Broyles is in the room, the Arkansas athletic director, you know, sort of legendary athletic figure at Arkansas. And Senator Bumpers is in the room, too. So he's starting to give orders right away. He says, well, you know, stand over there. Stand, you know, like he's, he's taking their pictures. And he told me repeatedly that one of the things he loved about photography, he said a photographer is always welcome. Well, of course, that's not true. I mean, a photographer has other, you know, expose type intentions. Withers got beat up because his camera was not welcome. Um, but he meant, what he meant was that he, as a photographer, he could use his social skills, which were considerable, to, to get people to pose and things like that. So he was utterly at home in my house. He made me at home in his house. And he was utterly at home in, uh, in a, you know, a situation where a lot of people would have been intimidated, including me. 
you know. I go in, I'm in a room with Senator Bumpers and Frank Broyles. You know, I'm a quiet guy, not Mr. Grice. Yeah, and that reminds me, like, uh, Grice, that, you know, you talked about his level of social engagement, you know. Uh, it made me think about those pictures of Joe Lewis, because if you see them in the book, we'll talk about those a little later, but, you know, it just seems that he definitely is commanding the room. You know, to think about a figure like Joe Lewis uh, at that time being famous and well-known, but the photographs that Mr. Grice makes of him is, they're like, it, it feels like they're friends or familiar with one another almost. And to think about the different roles that he played, he had his own studio, he worked as a photographer at, at the UAPB campus or A&M, AM&N at that time, um, but he also was like a press photographer. He would, he would work for the local newspapers as well, so he had a lot of practice in social engagement and connecting with people. So, he did. You know. And there's an Arkansas connection because you know he owes that to Daisy Bates and yeah. her husband, L.C. Bates. L.C. Bates, yeah. Yeah. They ran the Arkansas State Press, which, as you know, was an African-American newspaper published out of Little Rock but distributed statewide. Uh, I've, I've inquired a little bit into that when I was working on the book. And and I asked people if the state press could could be had up here in Fayetteville, and, it, and they mailed it. There were, there were African-American residents in, in Fayetteville who subscribed to the state press. So it was, it, uh, it's an African-American newspaper that really served the state and maybe even beyond it, you know, if people moved away to Chicago or someplace. So I don't know, you know, I'm not really knowledgeable about that, but I looked into it a little bit. And that goes back to his beginnings. I mean, he was a high school student when... L.C. at first was the one, you know, who was setting, who was doing the layout and stuff on the paper. But it was Daisy Bates that sort of encouraged him to write a column for high school students. And they, my memory, I used to know this when I was writing the book 10 years ago, but it's clear to me that most, a lot of the columns did not include pictures. Some did, but he did all the writing. So he wrote a column aimed at high school kids for, for the state press. And, and his first published pictures appeared there. So, they, you know, she's a, she's a, she and her husband are, are you know, really important figures in, in the African-American community in this state. And when his family moved from Tamo up to Little Rock to Dunbar for him to go to school, what a lift that gave him. I mean, that just put him in a different world. And it's obvious that Dunbar was Dunbar was better than most of white schools in the state at the time. So the uh, Dunbar was, you know, far and away the, the creme de la creme for high school education for African-American students. And then he meets Daisy Bates and L.C. He gets left out. He shouldn't get left out. Yeah, people, because they worked in tandem a lot, L.C. and Daisy Bates. And she had a lot of, um, like, important impact. Little Rock Nine. Exactly. You know, there's pictures of the, you know, most of the Little Rock Nine, like, sitting in her living room, and they would get escorted, uh, before they get escorted uh, to the campus uh, at that time. I guess she lived close by, but they would meet at her house. That's right. And um, they would get escorted by the National Guard at that time. And um, I know in the book, I was, I was re recalling as you were talking about Dunbar, but he mentioned, like, all the professors there, most of them had, like, PhDs and things like that. So he talked about how different that environment was. 
uh, for him. And there was a, and this, the book also covers like why they left. The book also describes why they left Tamar, Arkansas. Uh, some kind of dispute his father had with a white farmer, and the whole nine. So that that's a narrative that's like familiar um, across the South in general, <laughs> just yeah. in, in, in across the U.S. Um, about African American families losing rights to their their uh, land, um, and, and in this case, more particularly uh, farmland. But yeah, they had to kind of abandon. You know the land that they owned at that time, and then they ended up in Little Rock. And he talked. The book talks about that in great detail. Yeah, because that's a place again for me to confess. You know, the, just how much I could learn when he told me that story, and it came out. You know, at first just little dribs and drabs, but he by the time he told me that story in full, he said, and I quote this in the book because he laughed as he said it. It's a terrible experience, of course. It was terrifying to his parents. But he, he, he said, because he made up a phrase, he made up a fancy phrase. He said, we fled in disarray. And when he said that to me, I was driving. He was in the car, passenger seat, riding shotgun. And he was, he was telling it with flair. And he laughed. You know, I mean, he said, we fled in disarray. Ha, ha, ha. You know, and I said, man, well, just between you and me sitting here, my family, to my knowledge, never fled in disarray from anywhere. And you just got done saying that this was a fairly common experience uh, among the African-American community. So what that does is highlight, you know, uh, an experience that was, you know, I didn't have any common ground with that. Um, but he made me see it pretty vividly. And so in, in the book, the few places where I write analytically, you know, I say, look, that was a terrible blow in terms of community. It's a standard immigration experience, even though the immigration is only 45 miles. His family goes down. His dad, you know, his dad was like the principal or the major teacher in the school in Tamo. Uh, and his father, you know, he goes to work, you know, working pretty, pretty uh, menial job in a hotel in Little Rock. So his parents, you know, really lose status like standard immigrant communities do. But they do it on behalf of their kids. All his all his siblings, they went they went to they went to Dunbar and they went to college and they had good professional careers. And he liked to say, you know, I'm the. I'm the worst of the lot, he said, because he's the only one that stayed home. He's the only one that stayed in Pine Bluff. Yeah, I can definitely understand staying home because I've moved around quite a bit, but I document Arkansas as a photographer, and for some reason I just had to come back. Yeah. <laughs> so I can definitely relate to that um, from Mr. Grice's perspective. Um, but I'm going to mention a few things here for our next part of this discussion. So, you know, some people may be familiar with these names. Some of them you may not be, but I'm just going to kind of mention them to lead up to this question. Um, so I'm thinking about, you know, with this set of names, Arkansas photography, you know, in general, like the history of it. And I'm thinking about people like Mike Disfarmer, Dorothy Lane from the uh, Farm Security Administration made images here in Arkansas and in Arkansas Delta. Eugene Richards, you know, when I look at his pictures and all the work that he's published about, Arkansas, that was one of the first people, the first pho uh, photographer that I came across that was documenting the Arkansas Delta. I mean, I opened up his book and I'm seeing, you know, names of towns that I've spent my whole life in uh, up until that point or family occupies that space or you go out there for church service or funerals and things like that. So these are familiar places and they did not seem of interest to anybody living outside of the community. So that 
was a different perspective for me in photography and how I came to start making pictures in the Arkansas Delta just as an individual. But in your book, you mentioned several other prominent African-American photographers like Ernest Withers, Withers, who we've mentioned earlier, and then people like Jane Anderzy. Uh But you also bring up, you know, other uh, uh, photographers in history, African-American photographers from, photographers from further back. Like in the 1800s, you got James Presley Ball and Augustus Washington. If you don't know, you're not familiar with those names, I encourage you to look them up. But those were highlighted in Deborah Willis's book, uh, Reflections in Black. And you also mentioned um, that in your book as well. So when you think about times of segregation, when Bryce started making work, from your perspective and through your research, what important things would you point out about how vital it was for Bryce to be documenting African-American communities as an African-American photographer himself? And we've talked about this a little bit. Yeah. We can go a little bit more into detail. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's an element of full circle in all of this, Aaron, because you know, you you uh, came to me because you discovered the Grice book. But one of the things you brought to me was you brought me into noticing Eugene Richards. I, I'd never heard of him. <laughs> despite despite the work I had done, I'd never heard of him. So this, uh, once you have a shared interest, you know, then the, there's a multiplier effect in your learning that, that uh, I thought I was done. I mean, you know, this, I'm not a photographic historian. But the, the basic uh, thing, this would go back to the beginning. Once I, once I stood on Mr. Grice's porch and was welcomed into his home, and he was willing to talk to me, and I was shameless. I mean, I told him that he needed to be more famous and that he des- his work deserved uh, publication and that that was one thing. That was one card I had in my, my wallet. You know, I knew the people at the University of Arkansas Press. I'd done books with them before. And I was real confident that that they would be interested and in, that they would publish a book of his work. Uh, and I'd done, I had guest curated exhibits at the Old State House. So I was real confident that the Old State House would. So that was what I had to offer when I stood on his porch. But other than that, I was an ignoramus. And you mentioned Deborah Willis. I mean, once I decided to start working on this, I'm by this time I'm 50 years old and I've been around the academic block a little bit. So I had a plan from the beginning. Uh, I wanted to write an article length piece for the Arkansas Historical Quarterly, and I knew the editor there. Um, I've published more stuff in the Arkansas Quar- Historical Quarterly than any other journal. So I had good connections all over the state in the museum, the university press, the Arkansas Historical Quarterly. And so a whole series of things leading to the book as the culminating thing happened. In fact, the book isn't even the last thing. So the first thing we did was in that year, I guess it was 98 or 1999, in February. So he becomes, for that year, the big thing. We schedule a a presentation of his work with commentary by him in Giffel's Auditorium in Old Main. And then sometime maybe the next year, the, arc, the article length study comes out. A couple of years later, the book comes out. Then there's an exhibit at the old state house. And then I want to sh- uh, shout out to my wife here because she's, she's the sort of chief uh, recruiting officer, enrollment management uh, vice provost for, for getting people admitted here and recruiting people to come. And, of course, as you know, one of the things they really are trying to do is, is reach out to underserved communities geographically and, and class and ethnicity and all other things. And so my wife has this idea that we'll take this show on the road. We'll take this uh, Grice exhibit 
to schools all over the state. Uh, and she and a woman named Mary Beth Lines, who's retired now, but worked in her in the same office Suzanne did. Uh, and I think at that time she was, I mean, she might have to correct me on this, but she might still be still have been in the honors college. But at any rate, they sponsored over a three year period. We took that we took those things to something like 13 or 14 high school libraries all over the state, not just over in the Delta. We went to Hot Springs and we went to Little Rock, went to Newport. But, you know, one of the ones I remember the best is we went to West Memphis and we went to and we went to schools that had large African-American student populations. And here's all these Arkansas pictures. This really comes back to your subject. I mean, you got Arkansas high school kids looking at people that look like them, uh, looking uh, taken by a photographer who looked like them. And, and it's, uh, it's, it's just positive all around. I mean, everything is at the most bottom level. They were hoping that more people, more of the best students would apply to come to University of Arkansas. But that was a very limited goal. But it just seems, you know, and I think the last step is when you wrote to me an email and said, you know, you might be interested in this book about of Eugene Richards. And I thought, well, what goes around comes around because Mike DeBrisis had called me and I got to meet Mr. Grice and you saw the Grice book and here we are. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, everything becomes full circle. And, you know, I mentioned you know, I always like to look at things in the full context, you know, and, and like I was saying, uh, the first photographer that I became, you know, exposed to was Eugene Richards. I was flipping through the book, and you just went, mentioned West Memphis, Arkansas. You know, that's where I was raised. That's where I grew up, and, you know, that's why I still come back to Arkansas, why I'm living in Arkansas now, because of the experiences I had, you know, from living there and being raised there, but um, never did I think in a million years that I would, you know, combined photography with that lived experience. And, you know, most of my research around that, making pictures in that area is about, you know, photography as a transformative process to understand place. And that's mostly from this this standpoint of, like, resilience. Uh, you mentioned people uh, who look like Mr. Grice looking at pictures of people who look like them. And so, you know, my question for myself would just, you know, just to put out here for the podcast, it's like I often wonder what, difference that would have made in my pursuit of photography uh, so many years ago when I first started making pictures in Arkansas if I had come across Mr. Grice's book first as opposed to Eugene Richards uh, pictures first so that's kind of I always kind of think about that in the back of my mind um, because for years I'll, I never thought a black photographer made images in Arkansas in the way that these other bigger names history of photography, like Mike Disformer, Dorothea Lane, Eugene Richards, you know, there, and, and I've since then come to realize not only Mr. Grice, but you got Ralph Armstrong, and you got Rogerlene Johnson, and all three of those photographers, including, Mr., you know, Mr. Grice, um, all made pictures in and around near the Delta, Yeah, uh, and that's where I was born and raised, so just, you know, coming across the book, and then those other uh, photographers later on, Armstrong, Johnson, it just puts a whole different perspective of my pursuit now so many years later after those photographers. You know, when I pick up the camera and and go into uh, my community, um, it I just have to carry all that with me. So, so I, I think projects like this and books like this are important. And that's why I often refer to photography as a transformative process because 
it's just like how time and how we talked about earlier how weight can be carried through these things. Um, yeah. And fortunately for me, I have like a close tie to all of this. It's all Arkansas <laughs> for me. Yeah. But I think it can it can be uh, have a different impact for people that are even, aren't even from Arkansas and have a similar impact at the same time. So, you know, books like this are important. Archives like this are important, which we'll talk about a little bit about how big this archive actually is at the end. But yeah, it's good to just you know, hear that from you. Yeah, and I mean the the circle gets bigger and bigger and bigger, you yeah. know. But and I, what I wanted, and I'm really this is the first time I've had an opportunity to talk at this length outside my own family with it. But what I wanted to do was just stress, and I already told you the story about him him making my daughter's day years and years ago, and he just had that ability. Um, there's one other story that that you know, and this this is back in Pine Bluff. Uh, it was a pleasure for me uh, with my youngest son. My youngest son is African American. He's adopted. Um, and uh, we, you know, we had our reasons for that. We were, we were, my wife and I were told as a couple that, you know, we couldn't have children anymore. Uh, and we wanted one more. We wanted a kind of capstone. And he, he likes this title. We refer to, to Taylor as our capstone child that we get him and the arch is complete and it, it'll stand as strong. Um, so he goes down there to Pine Bluff with me repeatedly a number of times. Mr. Grice you know, he didn't, he, he, uh, didn't know his grandfathers in either one of them. So he, uh, Mr. Grice was just the right age and he looked like him just back to that look like him thing. And, you know, I've never talked to Taylor about this, whether Mr. Grice was in, you know, perceived in that way by him, but Mr. Grice took to him and one, maybe it was only the second trip. I'm always taking one of my kids down there. So all my kids got to know him and this, I can only put this in one line. The, my, my attachment to him personally, his welcome to me, was in an abstract way encouraging me to go deeper into that topic. So here's the memory. We're down there visiting him and we're going to go to lunch. And for some reason, right after lunch, we have to head back to Fayetteville. So Taylor turns to me as we're heading out the door of his house and he said, can I ride with Mr. Grice? And for me, that was, that was everything. It was just a tiny little line. I mean, it's a ten, five, ten-minute drive to whatever restaurant we were going to. But Mr. Grice had this jazzy little yellow Xterra, and, and Taylor liked the car. But I think he felt kind of like at ease with Mr. Grice. You know, he, he was in an age where he wasn't staying overnight. He'd go to stay overnight with some kid and call me up at 11 o'clock because he was homesick at night. But down there in Pine Bluff, he's ready to... He's ready to go off in Mr. Grice's car. And I thought, well, so he was just that kind of, the reason I'm telling those stories is Mr. Grice was just that kind of really amiable, welcoming guy. It encouraged me, and I'm sure it helped him as a photographer, you know, lining people up like Joe Lewis. You mentioned that. I've never thought of this till you mentioned it. One of those pictures is taken on like an L station platform. So he had to follow Joe Lewis. He had to be, an, and he had to be invited Somehow this stranger guy who was in a sailor uniform, right, Mr. Grice, young sailor, had to be invited by Joe Lewis and his wife to accompany them to, the, to that L station or train stop. You remember that shot? In, and yeah. he earned that shot somehow. Yeah. You know, that's not obligatory on Lewis's part. Yeah. And you have like you go a, ahead and talk about it. But. Yeah, there's like a two-page spread in the book. And we'll, uh, we can probably go ahead and just talk about it now. But... Um, you know, they're on pages 26 and, uh, through 29 of the book. And let me just get to that so we can just view it and talk about it. 
uh, live here, but um, yeah, this there is the picture is. you're talking yeah, about here. Yeah, it is. So, and I don't even know who the figure to the right is. Yeah, you know. And then here's some of the other ones here. Yeah, and seeing a lot of those in the nightclub and stuff. Those are sort of he. That's why he's there. He's sort of obliged to do this, right? Every yeah. he's used to this. Everybody there wants to be have their picture taken with Joe Lewis, but that last picture. He's he had to be in they're, they're they're no longer in the nightclub. He's got an outside coat on. His wife's got a got a, a hat and a coat on. So somehow he had this. You you've made me think about this. I've never really done this before. But he had to somehow finagle, and maybe that's too strong. He had to somehow earn. That's a better way to put it. He had to somehow earn an invitation from Lewis. Well, he had that gift. He that's he had it young and he had it old. When I met him, I've never met a guy that was as welcoming to me uh, when I announced that I'd like to write a book about him. And he, you know, we did it step, we did it in lockstep the whole way. And, you know, his last trip up here, he came up here to sign 225 copies of that book because the then chancellor, John White, chose this book. And I loved it that he did this, chose this book as his Christmas present to you know, donors and people who were devoted to the University of Arkansas. So Mr. Grice and I went up to, you know, Silas Hunt Hall, and it was after some basketball games, like 9 or 10 o'clock at night, I'll never forget it. We're the only two people in the room. There are 225 copies of the book, and he's signing. You know, we're both signing. He, he, he asked me to sign it, too. So our, there we are, the 225 copies floating around the state somewhere, uh, signed by most, both Mr. Grice and me. Uh, at Chancellor White's uh, invitation, so he just had that gift. That's the subject yeah. right now. He, he 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 got Joe Lewis to do that, and he he uh, he thrilled my daughter and thrilled my son, and and my son uh, saved his house from burning down. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> In the, the next set of pictures, I want to talk about. You mentioned Silas Hunt Hall, but uh, you know the next couple pictures I want to talk about are of Silas Hunt. So there's several of them in the book. Um, you know, Silas Hunt standing by the University of Arkansas sign and also right in front of the law school at the time. And these pictures were made in 1948. Um, and in the book, there's like a whole story. I was reviewing the book recently and, um, you know, in preparation for this interview. And I was just following up on everything, but I didn't realize that there was a story about Mr. Grice traveling um, with Silas Hunt on the way up here. Um along with Mr. Flowers, and there was another gentleman. There were four of them in the car. Wiley Branton. Yeah, Wiley Branton. And was it Branton that was the other applicant to the law school? That's right. So Branton got denied, and then Silas Hunt got accepted into the school. Um, And so Silas Hunt, um, for those of you that don't know, outside of uh, the University of Arkansas community or outside the state of Arkansas, Silas Hunt was the first African-American law student at the University of Arkansas Law School, right? Admitted, right? Hmm. Yeah, so that's the history of Silent Hunt and the importance that he plays here within the historical narrative of the University of Arkansas. And so for Mr. Grice to even just be associated with that historical moment, um, I think there's you can't talk about him without mentioning that. Yeah. No, that along with the King commencement speech might be, and this would be more significant historically because, you know, King gave a lot of commencement speeches, but it's, it's hugely significant in the Pine Bluff community. And here it's hugely significant in the Fayetteville community. Um, 
it was more or less an accident. He was a student at AMNN at that time and was asked to come along. But he did give a vivid account of it. I must say, again, I was, I was under aware of how significant his, his conversations were. I'm kind of careless as a field worker um, that I have a way of working and getting quotes that would not be approved by everyone, that I listen to people and I make notes and then I make coherent sentences out of those notes, and then I get them approved by the person. And so that's my, my last line of defense is, and, but the strict answer would be if somebody said, did they say exactly this? I'd say no, but they approved it. <laughs> so the, uh, I wish I had, you know, taped that, you know, that thing and, and put it into an archive. It's a place where I fault myself as a journalist slash scholar. And a lot of times, Mr. Grice was so casual that some of the most valuable things he would say would just be off the cuff as we we're coming out of a restaurant rather than in a situation like this where a you know, more or less formal interview. But no, he, he and a student photographer for the Arkansas Traveler were the only people to photograph that day. And it was a historic event. It's something that the University of Arkansas, on one hand, is justifiably proud of, although there's a lot to be embarrassed about, too. I mean, where the, you know, the housing that was not available to him, uh, the special seating that was arranged to him. Don't let people try to tell you that didn't happen. I've heard people tell me that uh, that's an apocryphal story, but it's not. It's not an apocryphal story. There's a, there's a book published by the University of Arkansas Press, actually, with a photograph I don't know who the photographer is, but it shows Hunt seated in this special little cage is too strong a word because it doesn't have bars and stuff on it. But it's a it's a separate it's a segregated seating uh, for Hunt while he's a student here. So on the one hand, yeah, give him give him, you know, one hand clapping for uh, for letting him in. But don't give him two hands clapping because they, you know, they reinforce some of their own, you know, stereotypes as as they did it. Uh, things are better, you know, now there's a building named after Hunt and stuff. And so, you know, justice is, justice is uh, retrograde in the sense that it's slow to arrive. But Grice was there for this, and he took, he took memorable pictures. Yeah, absolutely. And um, even with uh, Mr. Hunt, with uh, Silas Hunt's uh, experience here, didn't he leave without getting his degree? Yeah, he had health yeah. problems, uh, you know, following upon his military service. Yeah. Um, no, it's a, it's a sad story in many ways. But just, and I think you may have noticed this, one of the things that came to the University of Arkansas Special Collections, I know you want to get into this, uh, with Grice's collection was a yearbook from UAPB that has Silas Hunt's picture in it as class president. But that was, but yeah, they, Grice was on campus at the same time. That's right. That Silas Hunt was at uh, AMNN. UAPB present day, but yeah, uh, I just think these are such important um, historical images, uh, and to just have them in special collections here, uh, another reason, you know, that the role that photography plays um, in history and narrative, and in these pictures, like what, how people can react to pictures, I know at the time the governor saw the pictures published in some publication, maybe it was the Arkansas State Press, and he reacted to it and was like, who was that guy in there taking pictures uh, yeah. <laughs> of this black student? 
um, Silas Hunt enrolling in the law school. I don't want this in the press. No one should be covering this. And you know, he kind of exactly. inquired about like, who is this Mr. Gregston in there making pictures of it, making making a big thing about this? Yeah. Yeah, he wouldn't have called him Mister at that time, even though he was a World War II vet. You know, he'd gotten he'd been in the Pacific Theater, but. No, Lawrence Davis protected him there. You know, Grice told me that what happened was he got back to school, he got called to the president's office. And he said, look, I got this call from the governor, and he was not pleased. <laughs> and so basically, uh, the president of UAPB, the president of then AM&N, uh, covered for him, sort of protected him, and deflected the criticism. So he was a, he was a college student, a college undergraduate on the, on the GI Bill. One of the first benefits of the GI Bill was a whole lot of soldiers, you know, both black and white from from uh, less privileged backgrounds got to go to college. Another picture that I would like to talk about is the two this this picture that displays two police officers in the city of um, Pine Bluff in the 1960s. It's this picture is relevant for a number of reasons, this picture kind of transcends time periods. Like, it goes beyond being made in the 1960s because of everything that's been going on the last few years. But to even look at this picture and to consider, like, all the implications, which we could spend a whole episode on that <laughs> alone, it's just so much to talk about it. But what, it, what's, what are your thoughts on this picture, and, and, and what did Mr. Grice say about it when you all looked at it, you know, going through making this book? Well, here's the, here's the answer to that. It's a real easy answer. If I'm not sitting at the table with Mr. Grice, when we look at that picture, I flip it into the maybe at best pile. Remember, we're looking at a huge number of pictures, and we've gotten from the press a kind of ballpark figure of how many images we can include. And we had a number of decisions to make. But Grice and I are sitting, at, we, my wife and I live out in the country at that time. We're sitting around our dining room table with these boxes from his archive uh, and we're going through them a box at a time and if he doesn't say something I don't know I don't see that picture that the truth of the matter is I don't see its import and I've used an I've, I've made Xerox copies of this and used it in class they don't see it either the people in the class don't see it um, here's the significance of that and it was explained by Mr. Grice to me those are the first African-American city policemen in Pine Bluff that were armed so the, the essential thing there, I don't know how you can look at it, Aaron, and see what, just tell me whether you think the, 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 are, are, is it, is it obvious in the photograph that they are, that they are packing? Yeah. Well, being the observant <laughs> person that I am, I can see the holster okay. uh, there, but yeah, it is kind of subtle. It is pretty subtle. Yeah. So it's, a, it's asking the students a lot to see that. And I would not have seen it, but that once, once Mr. Grice tells me that, that this is, a, this is a commemorative picture, in a way. It commemorates a signal event. The first time armed black men have been employed <laughs> to, to patrol the streets of, of Pine Bluff. Um, he was present, and you know, again, given my own background, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have seen these things. When, when he went to that execution, and we haven't talked about an execution, but once with Daisy Base, he attended an execution. And uh, he, he talked about it at length because he wrote a column about it. He didn't take any pictures there. They didn't let him bring a camera, of course, into the, you know, execution chamber. 
but he witnessed it and it shook him up. You know, he's a young man. Um, it'd shake up anybody. But when he wrote about it, he said that it was progress in an odd way. And it was an execution that was significant to the African-American community because it was the first time anybody uh, had been executed for killing an African-American citizen. So, it, in other words, it, it, it placed a pre, it, it broke the record for valuation of black life in, in, in Arkansas. Well, it's a horrific event, and the person who was executed was black. But nonetheless, it was, and this is exactly Mr. Grice's phrasing, he said, it was progress in an odd sort of way. So, you know, well, those things are entirely alien to me, like that picture. I'm not going to perceive that picture unless he tells me. And now that he's told me a number of times, you know, it's not like I've got a great eye now, but I have a better eye than I did when I met him, you know. So it's educational. The, the picture you got there is funny, too. We don't need to talk about it, but that miscorrect posture. Picture. Oh, yeah. <laughs> See, he, even, and I wondered, I said, this is funny, right? And he said, yeah. It's funny. Yeah. And you talked about that, how the humor, um, he, he had a lot of humor in his images um, yeah. that were, like, threaded throughout. And that's one of the things that you kind of edit throughout the book as well. And another image that I want to talk about following up that image, you know, speaking about execution. And that is a, um, yeah, like that's the way that Mr. Grice put that uh, progress in, a, in a, an odd way. I don't know how else you put that. And there's different implications that, you know, come about that story, like even present day. It's just so much to talk about there, <laughs> but yeah. we could spend a whole episode on that as well. But I think it was this other the other picture that I want to talk about is in the book. There is a picture of a young man named um, Cornell Russ, uh, and he is in a, a funeral home, and there is a gunshot in the middle of his forehead. But you told me the story behind this and the significance of this picture, and including it in the book and everything like that. Was the location of this uh, Star City? Star City. Star City, Arkansas. Yeah. 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 Tell us about this picture and maybe uh, what Mr. Grice had to say about it as well. It was, it's funny you picked that one because it was the one we probably spent the most time, not just Mr. Grice and I, but uh, the people at the press because it's a gruesome picture. Um, the, uh, I get, this may be unfair to Mr. Grice, but I think he – was the deciding factor in it, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I think he wanted it, and here's why I think he wanted it. He, you know, I told you that he, and this is just my guess, and I'll probably this is the thinnest ice I'll be on in any of our talk today. He, uh, he, he apologized all the time for not being more active in the civil rights movement. And I told you the line about him, him judging his bravery and finding it wanting. But here he behaved bravely. This, this, this took considerable courage for him to do what he did there. Um, and, and if I were to isolate my reasons for wanting it in the book, it, they would not be political. It would not be. I mean, there's an obvious political story here. I mean, what this, what this image does, to put it bluntly in one line, is it, it I mean, to put it mildly, cast strong doubt on the official version of events, which said that this guy was shot trying to escape. Because just to put it in forensic terms, the entry wound is in the front. 
and the whole back of his head is missing. You can't really tell that. The undertaker has done his job. But uh, it's fairly clear that the hole in the forehead is an entry wound from the, from the bullet, even if you don't know the first thing about forensics. So it's really hard to imagine a guy getting shot in the middle of his forehead while trying to escape. So um, the, uh, it starts to look more and more like an execution. So here's the story. He gets called by the family of, of Mr. Russ and asked to take this picture because they want to try to pursue a legal case. Well, good luck, whatever time that is in the 1960s or 70s. But he goes down to Star City, a black photographer. He, uh, he uh, gets in. I mean, all those skills of affability on his part are here deployed in a really scary situation. He gets into the nursing home and he takes his picture. So, in other words, he does the job the family has hired him to do. Well, that's no job for a weak-kneed person. And so... My motive in wanting to include it is not for the indictment of the, you know, it's there, but that's not my motive. It's not for the indictment of the, of the, you know, law enforcement in Lincoln County at that time. My, my motive is, is personal. That for a guy who was apologizing all the time for staying on the sidelines, uh, he ain't on the sidelines in this, in this picture. He's, he's at considerable personal risk, uh, getting this picture that's at least how i read it yeah i read it in a similar way Um, i like how you put that um i just think you know even just from you know flipping through the book the versatile the very the variations of of situations that mr grice finds himself in i think that that picture just speaks to that like all the historical moments that he finds himself in and this one here just sort of puts things into perspective um, especially from the viewpoint of like, you know, going into this situation to make this image for a family. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that is a whole other conversation as well. Um, this wasn't something that he sought out on his own. He was asked to do this. That's right. Uh, so that's a very, uh, very important topic, very important conversation, just that, that thought alone. So. It runs against his grain too, Aaron. We've talked to them. I mean, the, the predominant pictures that Mr. Grice took at his own initiative, especially, were happy occasions. And he's particularly good at that. Um, birthday parties, graduations. And I'd say two-thirds of the pictures in, in this book, and it's just a rough estimate, but just, it had to be more than half, uh, portray moments of, of uh, you know, you don't want to use two grand awards like triumph or anything like that, but but they, they portray moments of, uh, of achievement or contentment or celebration. Um, and it's clear from this, one of the things that attracted me to this, and I think it's a really valuable record, especially around Pine Bluff, is that it's, it provides a glimpse into the sort of life of a community. And you see that it has all spots in it. It's got births and birthdays and high school graduations and people at work and people at recreation. One of my favorite pictures of him is three guys sitting at a ball game. It's completely, it's completely uneventful. But somehow you know those three guys showed up together to watch the game, even though they're seated on the ground a little bit widely spaced. They're not like they're cramped into seats in a stadium. But it's he's very good at, at uh, this. So this is atypical. I would I would say this is the clear lower level of the book for him. It's 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 without question the most gruesome picture in the 
the only gruesome picture in the volume. Yeah, and I think also this picture speaks to, we've kind of mentioned this in several different ways throughout the conversation, but it kind of highlights the different, the different, the differences in how images operate. Yeah. You know, uh, once they're made, once it's recorded and other people see it, you know, this image operates a totally different way than other images um, in the book do clearly. You mentioned Ernest Withers a few times. You mentioned Ernest Withers a few times in this conversation. And even in the book, there's parts where Jaleevi Grice says, you know, hey, I met Ernest Withers on several occasions. We, you know, we crossed paths, you know, exchanged pleasantries. Um, and so to think about, you know, Ernest Withers, his legacy and in, in the pictures that he's made, and, and we'll talk about archives in a little bit. I, I'm, 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 I'm convinced that we haven't even seen, you know, Ernest Withers' full archive. He has several books out, um, but then the other narrative about him being an FBI informant and then the debate up around that. Yeah. That's a whole other conversation. But what is your opinion or your take on that dynamic uh, between Withers and Grice? Uh, I also wanted to point out that they met each other and exchanged pleasantries because sometimes, like, we just can make the assumption that, oh, they were just working, you know, Withers was in Memphis, Grice was in Arkansas, and they never crossed paths. But I think it's important to mention that they, they crossed paths. They met each other. They knew each other. They were working at the same time period. But, yeah, yeah what's your opinion on that dynamic? See, that, that would be another one of my failings. I mean, the, 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 when I started working on this, I mean, you know, I call them, even though I'm sort of half journalist here and, and I wasn't trained as a photographic historian, you know, I am an academic. So when I just set out on this, I started to teach myself what I could uh, ab about uh, photography in general and about African-American photography in particular. And you mentioned uh, the Deborah Willis book was my starting point. Um, it was a big coffee table book, shelled out a lot of money to buy it. But then I used its bibliography and these other photographers you named. That's, that's where I learned about them, with the exception of James Van Der Zee. I knew about Van Der Zee for, because of a tie to Toni Morrison's uh, you know, novels. Toni Morrison paid attention to, to uh, his work. And so I'd, I'd, I knew a little bit about him as a as sort of Harlem photographer. But... Willis was was ground zero for me. She was she was uh, C spot run ABCs, and so the and then I just used her bibliography and then I used those bibliographies and taught myself what I could. I wish I had now to back to Withers. I wish I had asked him to go into greater detail about his interactions with Withers. Whether it might have been more sustained than than we could guess that now and i simply don't know the answer to that the my best answer to you is as i experienced him and i went around a lot with him we went to little rock together and and uh i enjoyed his company and and uh everywhere we went everybody knew him that was <laughs> it just seems surprising to me the the one i remember is when they had opened the exhibit at the old state house uh he stayed in the in the Capitol Hotel, you know, the fanciest hotel in Little Rock. And uh, we walk in to register, and this woman behind the behind the counter, working at the you know sort of reception desk, she says, "Mr. Grice, you know, or Jalevi, maybe she calls him her first name. I forget." People used to laugh at me. I was fifty years old, but till he died, I called him Mr. Grice. He was twenty years older than me. I never referred to him as Jalevi, and people made fun of me, but. 
It's just the way I was raised. Somebody's 20 years older than you, you defer a little bit. Um, but I, but I felt completely at ease with him. The mister was just some little thing of deference on my part, but I felt completely at ease with him, but I'll never forget this. This woman just burst, the smile just took over and she came running out of the, around the edge of the, you know, sort of reception desk, gave him a big hug and told him, you know, so you started talking about people they had in common that they knew. And that just happened over and over and over with him. We did a book signing at a little, at a, at a uh, bookstore in, in Little Rock. Um, same thing happened. You know, it must have been 10 or 15 people up here in Fayetteville. <laughs> you know, ball games, stuff. people come up to us out by the popcorn stand. And uh, he just was so gregarious. So it doesn't surprise me that, that he knew people. And he was not intimidated by station in station in life. As I told you, he, he was, I'll never forget him ordering Senator Bumpers and Frank Broyles to where to stand and stuff. And they both just fell right into line, you know, two sheep and a sheep dog. I mean, he knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. And, um, you know, another thing I want to talk about lastly is, you know, speaking of, you mentioned archive a few times throughout the conversation, but I don't think people really understand how much of, how much work of Mr. Grice's is in special collections here at the University of Arkansas. There's over 64,000 negatives and over 6,000 prints. So there's much more to uncover. And due to your efforts um, and the the generosity of Jim Blair, um, this archive is available for research. And so, you know, alongside yourself, I hope we can dive into more of what's in the archive and more to, more is to come oh me too this i mean you know this that when you showed up here there's of course i didn't know you were coming uh <laughs> but but i saved a lot of stuff and i hope i hope uh, aaron will end by mentioning that i did save a lot of stuff i mean i was a paul bear at his funeral i like this guy a lot mm-hmm. and uh and uh so I saved the program from that. I saved all kinds of new p- newspaper clippings, and I really couldn't tell you why. But I must have somehow felt that he deserved more work and that this huge collection, which, by the way, has been really effectively cataloged. Uh, Willow Hancock did a really nice first survey. So that'll, that'll be, you know, the thing that you were, that'll be very helpful when people, st- you know, box-by-box box analysis. It'll be very helpful to... Uh, to future researchers, but I must have felt that this, that I had just started on telling this story, and that uh, there would be someone come along, and then you show up. And I've, I've handed all this stuff to Aaron, and he has he's it's all it's all in, in on his desk now. I look forward to uh, taking it from here, and um, also and in, in including you on that journey as well moving forward. But I just think these pictures uh, that Mr. Uh, Jaleevi Grice took are so important. I'm thankful for this book. It has put me in a different perspective about the state of Arkansas and photography and just, you know, about people um, who look like me who carry a camera. Discoveries like this um, are important and efforts like this are important. I'm glad we met. I'm glad I came across the book. I'm glad we got to have this conversation today. Amen. Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you, Bob. Okay. Appreciate it. That was my conversation with Dr. Robert Cochran on Arkansas photographer Jaleevi Grice. I hope you enjoyed it. There's currently an exhibition of Jaleevi Grice's photographs 
up on the University of Arkansas campus located on the second floor of Old Main. So if you're local or visiting in the Northwest Arkansas area in the near future, please stop by and take a look. Thank you for listening. Until next time.